before we jump in and read the first commandment and think about what it means and think about what it implies and think about how it applies to us, I want to try to get your mindset out of a modern Western mindset that you live in by default. You don't ever think about it, but you just, by default, you live in a modern Western mindset. And I want to try to take you back, if I can, to the ancient world, to the days, to the times, to the era when God's people first heard these commandments thundered down from Mount Sinai and and delivered to them by Moses. I want you to think about the ancient world, and I want you to think about the fact that the ancient world, if you lived in the ancient world, your default understanding of reality is that the world, everything you experience, uh, this earth, was just filled, filled with gods and goddesses, with different deities. And we could look at different cultures. I just want you to think about the Egyptian culture. That's where the Hebrews were enslaved and they came out and God gave them these commands. So I just want you to think about uh, the Egyptians. Uh, I put some pictures up. You can see some uh, just depictions and, and artwork based on hieroglyphics and things you can, you can see in old temples in Egypt. Let me just list off, list off some of these gods. Amun was the creator god. Uh, Anubis was the protector of the dead. Atum also was the creator god, which kind of makes you wonder how there's two creator gods, but that didn't bother them. Uh, Horus was the god of healing. Osiris was the god of the underworld. Ra was the sun god. Ptah was the god of craftsmen. Set was the god of violence. Sobek was the crocodile god. Hathor was the god of sexuality or goddess of sexuality. Heket was the frog goddess. Isis was the goddess of magic. Sekhmet was the the goddess who protected the pharaohs. Wajet was the cobra deity. And if you just get online and you Google Egyptian deities, you can just find pages and pages and pages and pages. And they go on and on and on. One side I looked at. It it broke the deities down and it said, here are the major deities and here are the minor deities. Here are the gods and here are the goddesses. Here's the groups, the the deities that were responsible for the same sorts of things and then deities that were also responsible for the same sorts of things. And you know... Uh, if, you, if you have ever studied Roman history or Greek history and you've looked at their pantheon of gods and goddesses, that all of the different ancient cultures had their own version of what I just read to you. In fact, I remember, I think it was sixth grade, Crockett Elementary uh, at, uh, in Amarillo, we had, uh, in an English class, we had to learn the Greek gods and what they were responsible for, and we had to learn their Roman counterpart. And you can just take those two lists and you can add the Egyptians right beside it and you can just look across and as these cultures interacted, it really didn't bother them that they called these gods and goddesses different names. They just said, oh, you have a deity who's responsible for that? Well, we have a deity that's responsible for that. You call that deity whatever? Well, we call our deity this. And they viewed these gods and these goddesses as really just interchangeable. What I'm trying to get you to understand is what some would call a polytheistic worldview and some would call a pagan 
worldview. You can find it in some places still today. You can find peoples, groups of peoples that believe that there is any number of spirits and deities and gods that populate the world. And just a couple of characteristics of a a pagan culture. No single god is ultimate. They're all powerful, but there's not one who just absolutely can trump all the others. There may be some that are more powerful or less powerful. There may be a hierarchy, but there isn't one that just absolutely can bring down the hammer, so to speak, that's all-powerful or that's all-knowing. Even the most powerful gods and goddesses can be bested or tricked or duped. Next, the gods live together in some sort of primordial realm. So if you think about the, the Greek gods and goddesses, you may think about Mount Olympus. They all live up there on Mount Olympus. That's where they're at, and they may come down from time to time. They may interact with us, but they sort of have their own little place, their own domain. All of them have origins. They breed, for lack of a better word. This god and this goddess get together, and they have a child, and this god somehow made this other deity, and they all have some sort of story about where they came from, and they can be influenced by magic or ritual. That was the whole point of going to the pagan temple and offering some sort of sacrifice, is the idea that by offering this sacrifice, I'm sort of getting in good with this deity. Or maybe, even more than just getting in good and sort of being on good terms, maybe it's even the idea of if I do just the right ritual things and say the right ritual words, I will then have some sort of control over this deity. And they'll have to do whatever I want them to do for me to meet my own ends and my own agendas. It may surprise you, it may not, if you've read the Old Testament, that the Bible names and recognizes many Many of these deities, Egyptian, Canaanite, other deities. I'll just put a list of them up here on the screen. These are names that you can find uh, in the Old Testament without looking very hard. You just roll through and you're reading about all these different deities. Some of them were Egyptian and some of them were Canaanite and some of them were just the gods of Edom and some of them were uh, Sumerian, all these different cultures. And the Old Testament recognizes all these different peoples worship all these different gods and there's some that are even named in the New Testament. I, I, I give you all these names and show you these pictures and talk about these, these pagan pantheons to say this. To us, it sounds very strange. It sounds very exotic. You may have heard about the Greek gods and goddesses and Zeus and the rest of them or the Roman versions or the Egyptian versions, but we sort of look at them like fairy tales. We sort of put them in the category of uh, Aladdin and Jasmine and the Little Mermaid, and we say, oh, they're nice characters, We know about them, and the stories are entertaining, the literature is good, but we don't really believe that they have any existence. And I just want you to understand that the Hebrew people, coming out of slavery in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years, living with all pagan peoples all around them, this was just the world that they lived in. There was no one walking around saying, oh, you know, those those deities, they're, they're, they're just phony, it's just a story. These people really believed that these gods and these goddesses existed and that they could be manipulated and controlled and all of these things that we've discussed. This is interesting to me. 
It's interesting because we look back on ancient people and we say they're sort of superstitious and silly. Like we arrogantly look back as Westerners and say, <laughs> you dummies. If you think about it, though, we're not all that different. Think about ancient people. Let's put this next slide up. I want you to think about, uh, go to the next one. We'll come back to Rooker. Look at this one. Ancient people, they believe in this pagan worldview, this polytheistic worldview, and the end result is that they are very tolerant. They weren't really fighting about who was the most important or the the best god or goddess, if you wanted to worship that god or goddess, well, more power to you. They're there and they have a temple and you should go worship them. And I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to worship this one. And there was a, a, a tolerance for worship whichever deity you want. Worship all of them. Worship just one of them. Even as these cultures interacted, they, sometimes, you know, they may get uppity about, well, we call this deity such and such, and we call it this and such, and which are we going to call it? Well, let's call it that and such, or whatever. But it's just the same idea. It's just changing the label on the same category of deity in their head. And the result is they were very tolerant. I don't think we're all that different today. We're not ancient people. We're modern people. And we don't believe in a pagan worldview, but what we do believe in, we'll put this next one up, is a pluralistic worldview. That's sort of the name of the game today in Western culture. Whatever you want to believe is fine for you. If it works for you, great, do it. And the end result is that we're very, very tolerant. If you want to have no God, well, that's fine. If you want to have the Christian God, well, that's fine, as long as you don't try to step on my toes with your morality. If you want to worship the Muslim God, more power to you. If you want to be a Buddhist, that's great. And sort of the mindset among many of the, the movers and shakers is, any one of these is as good as the other. Like, there's a, a pluralistic approach to religion and spirituality, and you just take what you want, and the end result is that tolerance becomes the name of the game. We'll go back to this quote from Mark Rooker. He, he makes a good point. Thinking about the first commandment, the prohibition against the worship of all but one deity was unique in religious history. When God gave this command to Moses and Moses gave it to the people and the people started to go out and the people said, look, you, there is only one God you can worship. You cannot worship these other gods and goddesses. They were the only ones saying that. And it was not that much different for the Hebrews as ancient people as it is for us as modern people. When the Hebrews went around and said, there is only one God and he is the only one you can worship, everyone else said, get off your high horse. Who are you to think you've got a corner on the God market? We have our own ideas and you can just take a hike which is not unlike what many of you may have heard at different times today when you say, wait a minute, the Bible says very specific things about the one true God and this deity and this religion is not saying the same things and we're talking about completely different uh, deities and we're not on the same page. People may look at you and say, get off your high horse. Who are you to think that you've got it all figured out? And the issue, as we're going to look at tonight, is not that we have figured anything out. This is not anything we're trying to impose on people. This is what God has spoken to his people. This is what God has revealed to his people about who he is 
and what he expects of them. So here's the first commandment. If you've got your Bible open, we can read it straight out of the text. I think it's also on the notes. Exodus 20, we'll read verse 1, 2, and 3. It says, God spoke all these words. This is not Moses' musings about religion and spirituality. This is God speaking to his people. God spoke all these words. And this is what he said. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. And every week we'll work on our, uh, our hand signs so we can remember the commandments so we don't forget them, right? One finger for the first command, two fingers for the second command, three fingers for the third command. So commandment number one is really easy. You just put up one finger and you say there is only one God. Commandment number one. You will not have any other gods before the one true God. So we're going to ask a couple of questions and see if we can answer them, okay? Question number one, what does that command mean? What does it mean when we just read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. It's pretty straightforward. It's an introduction. God's saying, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. And the first thing that you need to know right out of the gate is that you will not put other gods beside me. You will not put them before me. You guys have different translations. Some of them use the word beside. Some of them use the word before. The, the prep, preposition there in Hebrew can kind of go either way, right? The idea is there's no one like me, so don't put anyone on the same level as me. No one before me. No one is even my equal to be beside me. You will not worship any God but me. So, that begs a question, right? A question leads to a question. What does this commandment mean? And the question that comes to mind is, does the first commandment acknowledge the reality of other, quote-unquote, gods? I mean, why not just say, right out of the gate, all these Egyptian deities are just a fabrication of your imagination. They are not real. There's nothing there. Instead, what Yahweh says to his people is, don't put any of the other gods, and there's a bunch of them. Wikipedia has pages and pages and pages of them listed out. Don't put any of them beside me. Don't put a single one of them in front of me. Is the first commandment acknowledging the reality of other gods? Here's my answer. Yes. The Bible recognizes the existence of other gods. Little g gods. And no. So I'm playing it both ways. Yes and no. No, the Bible insists that there is only one big G God. We're pretty comfortable with the second part. Only one big G God. Got it. This is what you got to understand when you read this commandment and you read the rest of the Old Testament. The Bible does recognize the existence of other little g gods. The Bible sometimes talks about the gods of these other nations as if sometimes they're just pieces of wood. It's just wood. It's just wood. Isaiah 44. It's just wood. You cut the tree down. You made the idol. 
We're going to talk about that next week. It's just wood. But sometimes the Bible talks about these deities as if they have some kind of real existence and some kind of real power. Almost as if there's some sort of demonic being standing behind these idols, behind these deities, behind these names, behind these pantheons. And both of those things are part of the biblical worldview. Um, Look in your Bible. Let's look these verses up. Let's look at Deuteronomy 4. We'll look up a couple of these. Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. Moses is speaking to the people. This is Moses' last charge. He's actually about to rehash the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. But look what he says in Deuteronomy 4, 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. The Lord God in heaven above and on the earth beneath... There is no other. The Lord is God in heaven and on the earth, and there is no other. Right? He's the only big G God. He has no rival. He has no equal. There's absolutely nobody like him. There is none other. So is it, does it acknowledge the existence of other gods? We say, yes, it talks about them. It acknowledges them. It names them. It warns people about their power at times. But at the same time, it says there is only one true God. Some of this we can clear up if we look at the verse again. Let's put the verse, the actual commandment, back up on the screen. This is Exodus 20. It says, God spoke all these words. Big G, God, spoke all these words. And he said, I am the Lord. That's Lord, all caps. Your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And I'm just going to put the same verse up there, except I'm going to switch out the, the words, the English words, for a few Hebrew words, and you'll get an idea of what the verse is saying. The text says, I am Elohim. And that word Elohim means gods, plural, or God, singular, depending on the context. It means both. I am Elohim. Excuse me. Elohim spoke all these words and he said, I am Yahweh. I'm your Elohim. Right? All these other people have their Elohim, their deities. And you're not going to worship any of them. You're going to worship me. And I'm going to tell you my name. It's not Horus or Ra. It's not Ptah. It's not Zeus. It's not Hermes, it's not uh, Aphrodite, it's not any of these things. My name is Yahweh. I am your Elohim. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You will have, the exact same word shows up, you will have no other Elohim before me. And the point of this verse is, I am the only big G God. I know there's all these other little g-gods out there, these false deities, these, these imposters, these posers. I am your God, and I'm the only one that you will worship, and you will not put anyone else in front of me. This command is getting down to the very most central important attribute of God in the whole Bible, and that's his holiness. That's why we sing that song tonight. I know we sing that song all the time on Wednesday nights, but you've got to sing it tonight Because that's what this verse is about. God is holy. He's unique. He's one of a kind. There's absolutely no one else like him. The seraphim and the cherubim, in all their glory and all their sinless perfection, are bowing down before God. 
Because he alone is the big G God. That's the idea in Exodus 21 to 3. Yes, there's a recognition of other little g gods, but the Bible insists there's only one big g God. What does that include? What does it imply for us? Let me give you a few thoughts. Negatively, the command is negative. You will not do something. You will not put these other gods before me or beside me. So that means we're not going to worship or serve or pray to or fear or trust in or long for any other gods. That's a lot of negatives. But when the command says, you don't put anyone before me, you don't put anyone beside me, this is what it's getting at. You're not going to worship them. You're not going to serve them. You will not pray to them. You will not fear them. You will not trust in them. You will not long for them in the place of God. And when you read it that way, you could take all those deities, all those names I put up there earlier, and you could plug them in individually, right? Like we could take Molech. It's a God, a little g God listed in the Old Testament. And we could say, you're not going to worship Molech. You're not going to serve Molech. You're not going to pray to him. You're not going to fear him. You're not going to trust in him. You're not going to long for him more than you long for Yahweh. So you could put another quote-unquote God in there. Or you could put what we termed a couple of months back, a little g God in there. You could put money in there. You could put fame in there. You could put reputation in there. You could put a career in there. You could put any other thing you want to put in there. And you could say you're not going to worship it, serve it, pray to it, fear it, trust in it, or long for it in God's place. That's the negative. The positive is, we're going to see this every week. When there's a negative, a positive is implied. When there's a positive, a negative is implied. Here's the positive. We give exclusive, wholehearted worship to God. Big G God. The one true God. We worship him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. That's what we read in Deuteronomy. If you just flip over to Deuteronomy 6, we'll read a few verses that are very familiar to you. This is right after Moses repeats the Ten Commandments to the people. And he says this to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, that's exactly the same language from the first commandment. I am Yahweh, your God. It's exactly the same phrase. Yahweh, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If you like to draw notes in your Bible, you should circle Deuteronomy 6.4, and you should draw a line back over to the left to Deuteronomy 5, verse 7, that says, you shall have no other gods before me. And you say... The commandment, commandment one in Deuteronomy 5 says this is the negative. No other gods before me. Here's the positive, Deuteronomy 6. You're going to worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything that you have. You're going to serve him, fear him, pray to him, trust in him, long for him. Now look, I haven't said anything probably at this point talking about what we're not going to do and what we are going to do. I haven't said anything that probably makes you uncomfortable. You're the Wednesday night gang. Like you're, amen, that's right, this is good. 
It's one thing to sit in a sanctuary and fill in a blank on an outline and say, yes, we're not going to worship, serve, pray to, fear, trust in, or long for any other gods, and we're going to worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's one thing to sit in this room and say it and nod your head to it. It's another thing to do it when you leave this room. And the command is not saying, I would like you to agree with this and nod to it and check it off on your outline. The command is saying, do it. Don't put anything else before or beside God and worship him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Serve the Lord with all that you have and all that you are. That includes your actions, things you do. It includes your words, the things that you say. It includes your thoughts, the things that you think. And it includes your feelings, the things that you feel, your emotions, all of those things. So that's the positive-negative sort of application. Here's a a biblical application. And throughout this study, when we look at the commandments, we're going to use something called the biblical rule. The biblical rule says we look at these commandments and we interpret them not just with what it says, but with everything else that we read in the Bible. We take everything else we find in the Bible and we come back and make sense of these commands. So biblically, we have to acknowledge that the one true God exists as a trinity. There is only one God, we just read that in Deuteronomy 6, who exists as three persons. Now I realize that when you look at Exodus 20, 1, 2, and 3... It doesn't say anything about the Trinity. I'm completely aware of that. That's why in the top section we said, what does it mean? We weren't talking about the Trinity. Now we're down and we're saying, what does it include? What's implied here? And the biblical rule says, well, look, if there's only one God and you're going to worship him only, you need to know what all of the Scripture says about that God. And the rest of the scripture says that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all fully and equally God, and yet there is only one God. And we're not having a Bible study on the Trinity tonight. We did that a couple of weeks back when we looked at systematic theology and we solved all of the riddles and enigmas and made it really easy, right? Everyone got it. What we're saying is, if that's how God has revealed himself, and if that's who he is, then you've got to approach him on his terms, Right? To approach him any other way is if he were not this trinity of Godhead, is maybe not to sit down and whittle an idol with your hands, but it is to sit down and make one with your mind. And the Bible is opposed to both forms of idolatry idols that you make with your hands and set on your, your coffee table, or idols that you make in your mind and you say, Well, I don't. I don't really like to think of God like that. I would like to rather think of him like fill in the blank. You don't get to do that. That is idolatry at its core. And you may not have a wood carving to show for it, but it's idolatry. So we acknowledge that God exists as a trinity. The biblical rule, one more thought. We accept exclusivity. I think that's just implied. Exclusivity. I'll let you look these verses up. I think you're familiar with them. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
I'm not giving you options here. I'm just telling you this is the way. And that's kind of what the first commandment's all about, right? You don't get to pick your deity. You don't get to pick your God. I'm your God. I'm picking for you. And I'm the only one you're going to worship. No one else beside me, no one before me. Acts 4, 12 says, There is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. There's only one way. That's exclusive. It falls under the first commandment. 1 Timothy 2, 5, There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. There's one mediator. There's not lots of mediators. There's one. And there's only one way you can approach this God. So here's a few thoughts from some of the scholars that uh, me and Corey and Hunter have been studying. Al Mohler says this, There's only one God and only one way to know this God through Jesus Christ. You understand, that has implications for an awful lot of people in the United States of America who say... I believe in God, but Jesus Christ has no part in their life. The biblical rule applied to this commandment says that's, that's of really no value to you. The, the true God and his means of salvation and the way he's revealed himself is exclusive. And you have to come to terms with that. Here's a quote from a, a pastor, Alistair Begg. He says, on the basis of this first commandment, we must be prepared to declare that there is a decisive difference between the Christian faith and other religions. So just be done with this idea that, well, I don't care what you believe as long as you believe something and, you know, it doesn't matter what church or mosque or synagogue you go to, we're all all praying to the same guy, right? And the first commandment is saying, no, we're not. There's plenty of little G gods out there, and you can pick one of those if you want, but there is only one big G God. And his requirement of you is that you only serve and pray to and worship and trust in and long for him. I like what Michael Horton says. The quote is really, really long in his book, so I just kind of paraphrased it. This is not a quote, but he says, Americans have settled for a God, and that A is supposed to be capitalized for emphasis. We've settled for a God. We're not all that different than the men of Athens who worshipped an unknown God. You see this all the time. I'm going to make some of you uncomfortable, okay? Don't get mad. You see this all the time when people start saying, we want, a, we want prayer in schools. Who do you want them to pray to? Just any, any God? And some of you may be saying, no, we don't want them to pray to any God. We want them to pray to the true God. But there's an awful lot of people that are just happy for it to be any God. Just a God. If we just pray to a God. And the first commandment right out of the gate, which is basic building blocks of the Old Testament, is saying not all prayer is created equal. Just because you address it to G-O-D God doesn't mean that you're thinking about the true God in your mind and in your heart. So what kind of prayer do you want back in school? Or what kind of prayer do you want before that football game? Or what kind of prayer do you want at that civic event? Many Americans are just happy for it to be a God. Let's not say too much about him. Let's not pray in Jesus' name. Let's just say God and everyone can feel good about that. Well, who are we talking about? 
And Horton says, we're probably not talking about the same thing. Let's look at a few Old Testament and New Testament examples, and then we'll wrap this up. We don't have time to read all these. Let's look at Judges chapter 2. Judges 2. To put this in in the timeline of the story, Moses comes to the people in Egypt. The plagues come. He leads them out through the Red Sea. They get out in the wilderness. They grumble against the Lord. The wheels kind of come off the bus, and God says, Look, all you people I just saved, you're going to die out here, and I'm going to bring your kids into the land. So they all die, and Deuteronomy comes around, and Moses is talking to the kids, and he's getting ready to bring them in the land, and they go in with Joshua. Moses doesn't get to go. He dies. Joshua leads them in. They fight at the the Battle of Jericho, and they conquer the, the promised land up and down and back ways and front ways, and they all sort of go to their places And then the book of Judges picks up and tells us this. I mean, this is right when they put their sword down and settled in the promised land. Judges 2.11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their father, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. I bet they did. That's the first commandment. You just got done fighting. Or maybe it would be more accurate to say, God just got done fighting for you. And he gave you this land. He gave you cities that you didn't build and vineyards that you didn't plant and farms that you didn't cultivate. And he just gave it to you. And as soon as you get down and you settle and you put away your sword and you take up normal life, they just abandon the Lord. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, just as the Lord had warned, just as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. The rest of their history is more of that. Maybe a bright spot here or there or a good king every now and then. But mostly it's just like that. And if you just take your Bible and you flip over a few books and you find the book of 2 Kings chapter 17. You'll see that finally God has enough of it. 2 Kings 17 verse 6. It says, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria and he placed them in Halah and on the Haber, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Have you ever wondered, we're now hundreds of years after the Ten Commandments, hundreds of years. Why are they still saying it like that? Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. They say it over and over and over again in the Bible because that's what it says in the first commandment. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You will have no other gods before me. And it just plays on repeat. They sinned against Yahweh, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods. You're not supposed to do that. 
They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and the customs that the kings of, the Israel, of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God. That's ironic. That's like ha-ha secret. Secretly against Yahweh their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns. They weren't worshiping Yahweh at the high places. They were worshiping Molech and Chemosh and Dagon and Baal and Ashtaroth. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. They did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. They served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. And he warned them through prophet and seer, turn from your ways, keep my commandments. Which one? How about the first one? Just start with the first one. No other gods. In accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and I sent you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14, they would not listen. They broke this commandment over and over and over again. Let's go to the New Testament. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. You can look at Matthew 6. That's Jesus talking about God and money. And he says, you've got to pick. You can't have two. You can put God first or you can put money first, but they, they're not going to coexist. Where did Jesus get that idea from? He got it from the first commandment. No other gods before me, no other gods beside me. Same idea. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to all, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains a whole world and loses or forfeits his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels." Jesus says this, this may be the most offensive verse to Christians in the United States and the whole Bible. You can't be the center of your life. You can't be beside God in importance. You can't be before him in importance. You're going to have to pick. You can put yourself first and you can abandon the Lord. Or you can deny yourself and die to yourself daily and consistently, intentionally take yourself out of the center of your own life to follow Jesus. But you can't do both of those things, and you're going to have to pick, Jesus says. And he says the stakes are really high. It's your soul that's on the line. This is all the way back to command one. You can't have anything beside him or before him, including yourself. There's a guy named Oscar Wilde. If you want to know who he is and what he was about, you can Google him. I don't want to talk about him. But I like this quote that he says because it pictures our world today. Oscar Wilde said this, To love yourself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. Belongs on a greeting card or something. Happy birthday. Love yourself. It's going to be a great Valentine's Day or anniversary day. He was just a, look, you, you can read about him. He was just a, a lush. He's just a lived for himself, lived for pleasure, rotten guy. 
And you would expect that from him, right? From somebody like that, didn't claim to follow Jesus, didn't claim to keep the first commandment, did his own thing, thought everything we're talking about tonight was just bunk. So you read that and you say, well, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Love yourself. Make yourself the most important. Here's a quote from a pastor, former pastor, Robert Schuler. He said, to love yourself is to be truly religious. I don't think he read Luke 9 or Exodus 21. I'm not asking you to go around and kick yourself like you're a worm and throw dirt on your head and throw a pity party all the time and just tell everyone that you're the worst. But Jesus, he makes it pretty clear. God can be first in your life, or you can be first, but you, you can't have both. And what Jesus is calling you to do is not make yourself first. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Crucify yourself. Deny yourself. Don't put yourself beside him. Don't put yourself before him. Look, I think you add all this up. You think about this command and everything that it means. Every time we sin, whatever the sin is, we break the first commandment. Every time. You, you, me, we, we've never committed a sin where we also didn't break the very first commandment. And the irony of the Ten Commandments is if you just pull the average person off the street and you say, hey, what are the Ten Commandments? They're going to fire off, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, and they're going to start stumbling and fumbling around. And they think it's all these external things. We haven't even gotten to the other half of the commandments yet. We're just looking at the first one. And when you realize what the first one is demanding of you, what it's telling you not to do and what it is telling you to do, you realize there's not a time that we've sinned where we haven't also broken this very first commandment. That's true of our idolatry. It's true of our lust. It's true of our greed. It's true of everything, our own comfort. When we take anything and we say, this is more important to me, doing this thing, having this thing, pursuing this thing, chasing this thing is more important to me than Yahweh, my God, You've broken the first commandment. Whatever else you do, you've broken the first commandment. How do we, how do we think about this in Jesus' life? Let me give you one last thought. We'll end. Jesus never gave his heart over to a false god, and he always honored the Father. He never gave his heart over to a false god, and he always honored the Father. He never did the stuff he wasn't supposed to do. And he always did what he was supposed to do when it comes to this first commandment. Turn to Hebrews 4. We're going to read it in just a minute. If I asked you to just think about the temptations that Jesus faced to put someone or something else in God's place. Some of you might immediately say, well, you know, Satan showed up that one time in the wilderness and said, you, you could bow down to me, and that seemed pretty obvious that you shouldn't worship the devil if you're the son of God, and so he resisted and, and thumbs up. But I think there were some other things that Jesus was tempted to put 
in that top place, in that, that highest place. I think one of them would have been fame. There were times in his life and his ministry where the crowds were just frenzied with excitement. Wanting, we want you to be the king. We want to get the throne out. We want to call the parade. We, let's get it going. We want this. And he had to fight the temptation to make that the most important thing. And he fought it. He didn't give in to it. I think he was tempted probably at times with the, uh, the little G God of power. You think about Jesus on the cross being mocked by his enemies. It wouldn't have even taken a snap of the fingers to just crush him. He had the power to do that. And he didn't. He saw the bigger picture. He honored the Father. He did the Father's will. He didn't give in to that temptation. I think comfort was a God that he was faced with, an idol or a a little G God that was set before him. I think that's what Satan was offering him, right? Satan was saying, I have a shortcut for you. You're here to get all the nations. I know that. You don't have to suffer for it. All you have to do is hit the ground once. It's an easier way. No pain, no suffering. It's easy. It's comfortable. It's quick. It's American. He honored the Father. I won't take the easy way. I'll I'll follow the Father's plan no matter what. At the end of his life, here's the, the summation. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. But, verse 15, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin in your life you have faced temptation to make something or someone more important than God to put it before him or beside him to break the first commandment and the author of Hebrews is saying to you Jesus faced the exact same temptation in fact he faced it way more than you ever did because you and I face that temptation and we give in pretty quick I mean it doesn't take long for us to just roll over and blow it Jesus faced that temptation to its fullest. He took every trick up the devil's sleeve. He faced every bit of that temptation, yet, the author of Hebrews says, without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what the book of Hebrews is saying when you read, uh, you continue reading. Before Jesus could die for us, he had to live for us, right? The back half of Hebrews is going to get to the cross and the sacrifice and all the things that happened. But first, the author of Hebrews is saying, you need to understand something. Before he ever died for you, he lived for you. Before he ever died for you breaking the first commandment, he kept it perfectly. And because he kept it perfectly, he was able to be the sacrifice that you need. So we think as Christians, many times we sing and we pray and we say, thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you that Jesus died for me. Thank you that he 
I've blown it on the first commandment, and he took the punishment for that. And that's good, and that's right. But in this study, I want you to be thinking, before he died for me, he kept that commandment for me perfectly. And not only is my breaking the first commandment put on him, but his keeping the first commandment is given to me. His righteousness is given to us. His obedience is counted as ours. He takes our sin. What a great exchange. He takes our sin and takes the punishment for it, and we get his righteousness as if we had been the ones to keep that command. 